Amen. All right, well, this is um, week number two of our um, class on cultural apologetics, where we're looking at how Christianity transformed the world. And this morning's um, lesson is going to be on the issue of religious liberty. Now, just to be clear, um, we've been talking about Christian liberty recently in some sermons. That is not the same thing as I'm talking about this morning, even though the words are similar. So Christian liberty and religious liberty are two different ideas. Uh, Christian liberty has to do with the freedom of the conscience of the individual Christian to not be enslaved by teachings that are not in the word of God, okay, and, and, and leaving the conscience free. However, religious liberty does have something to do with that, and we're going to talk about that today. But when we talk about religious liberty, we're talking about a slightly different idea, which I want to define for you on the front end of today's class. So what do we mean by religious liberty? Well, religious freedom, religious liberty is a right that we believe, not because the Constitution gave it, but because the Constitution recognized it, um, as a right that's given by God. It's guaranteed by our First Amendment in the United States Constitution that allows individual people or groups to practice a religion or to practice no religion at all, both in private and also in public, with a minimal amount of interference from the local, state, or federal government. So that's the idea behind religious liberty. It's not just a Christian, quote-unquote, right. It's an every-person right that we believe is given by God to all people. So let's, let's kind of shorten up and maybe tighten up the definition a little bit. A summary might be religious liberty means that the government, within reasonable limits, leaves religion alone as much as possible to make room for, not fro, for people to practice their religion as freely as possible. So the government, within reasonable limits, because there are some times where the government would have to step in in the areas of religious liberty if they were doing things that were against the public good legitimately, like a cult calling on their members to commit suicide. Okay, so that would be within reasonable limits. Religious liberty means the government, within reasonable limits, leaves religion alone, not just Christianity, all religions alone within reasonable limits, as much as possible to make room for people to practice their religion as freely as possible. Or another summary, religious freedom or religious liberty is the freedom to join or leave a religious movement without changing one's relationship positively or negatively with the state. So that's the idea of religious liberty. Uh, we have it embedded in our own confession of faith and many churches um, have it in their confessions of faith. And th this idea is expressed throughout by Christians throughout church history. In our particular confession, it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. So religious liberty is probably the main theological contribution that Baptists have brought to church history. It's one of the, it's one of the core ways in which God has moved through the Baptist branch, we could say, of the church to, to bless and transform the world. The Baptist version of or vision of religious liberty extends back to the radical Puritans of the late 16th and early 17th centuries who didn't want to be part of the Church of England, which was, as you know, was a state church based on our study of church history in previous weeks. Early Baptists entered a world that was dominated by state churches where the modern concept of religious freedom would have been nearly inconceivable because the church and the state were almost one. So radical English Puritans wanted to be free to obey the scriptures. And by radical, I don't mean crazy. I just mean they were out of step with the, with the cultural moment of their day. 
Um, radical English Puritans wanted to be free to obey the scriptures. So in the early 17th century, some of these Puritans broke away from the, re- from the rest over the issue of infant baptism. So because at that point in the 16th and 17th centuries, infant baptism was embedded within the state church, Baptists, who weren't called Baptists at the time, they were just part of the state church, began to feel like this was not in accord with the teaching of scripture. And so they wanted to peacefully break away from the state church in order to form their own congregations where they could practice believing baptism and and church membership. Well, as you might have imagined, that didn't go so well. One of the first ways that Baptists exercised religious freedom was by rejecting infant baptism and embracing the baptism of believers alone. And Baptists were involved in many of the key events that helped define the development of religious freedom within the American context. Some of these events include... In 1611 and 12, Thomas Helwes, who started the first Baptist church in England, published the first book-length defense of religious liberty in English. He called it a short declaration of the mystery of iniquity. Helwes calls for the complete liberty of conscience for all people. After conflict with the Puritan leaders of New England over, among other issues, the relationship of the church to the government, Roger Williams was expelled from the Massachusetts Bay Colony. He founded the colony of Rhode Island, as a shelter for persons distressed of conscience. What you may not have known is that the state of Rhode Island began as an exercise in religious liberty for Baptists. Uh, Williams founded the first Baptist church in America in 1638. And my computer is holding up, so pick up the pace. Baptist preacher John Leland, a friend to both Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, Uh, helped ensure the inclusion of the First Amendment in the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing religious liberty. The addition came as a compromise between Madison and Leland, whereas Madison agreed to fight for the amendment's passage in exchange for the preacher's promise to drop out of a contested congregational race against Madison. Politics go back a long way, don't they? (laughs) In a letter to the Danbury Baptist Association of Danbury, Connecticut in 1802, President Thomas Jefferson first described a wall of separation between church and state. So that's where that phrase, as far as we can tell in in, in American history, was first used by Thomas Jefferson in a letter to a Baptist association. And though at times controversial in its application, Jefferson's description of that wall would be recounted countless times in later religious liberty debates. And we'll get in a little bit later to what we mean by the separation of church and state rightly understood. So that's, that's sort of some historical background to how Baptists particularly have helped um, bring, to, bring about this idea of religious liberty um, in our own country and, and, and in other Western countries as well. Um, but I want to move on to the challenge, the challenge to religious liberty today, and this will be familiar to most of us. Um, Al Mohler has coined the, the current challenge as erotic liberty versus religious liberty. And I think that's a helpful way to summarize the, the challenges over religious liberty that we're facing in the culture at this time in America. The collision that we see happening most frequently is the liberty of Christians and other religions as it comes into conflict with the aims of LGBTQ activists. So for the first time in American history, common Christian beliefs are viewed as incompatible with the prevailing culture. It wasn't that the the the, the culture um, liked everything about Christianity in the past. Those of you who are older understand that. And it wasn't even that the prevailing culture accepted it. It was just they tolerated it. They didn't see it as incompatible with the prevailing culture. But now the issue of religious liberty is incompatible with the prevailing culture because 
it's the one kind of holdout for, um, for the sexual revolution because now it's, it's, it's seen as an issue of which the, these people, these religious groups, whether they be Muslim or whether they be Christian or whether they be Orthodox Jews or whatever, they're going to they're gonna hold to this vision of, of, of sexual ethics that's incompatible with where the prevailing culture is trying to take the culture. So Christians who hold to a biblical sexual ethic or, or really any other uh, religious group that may hold to a more conservative sexual ethic are often expected to give up some of their rights to believe and practice their convictions in order to accommodate the sexual revolution. While this is a far cry, and we need to be careful about this because I, 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 I feel like Christians are just like lamenting this as some disastrous form of persecution. Um, it's a far cry from the severe forms of suffering that are affiliated that are, that are in other countries and experienced by our brothers and sisters throughout the world. But it still affects religious liberty and the ability to freely practice the Christian faith, which is a biblical idea. And we'll get into some of that in just a moment. So, however, we have to be balanced. So the sky is not falling. America is not about to become communist China. But real and significant threats do exist to religious liberty. So we must neither ignore very real threats to religious liberty nor exaggerate the threats that we face. There have been religious freedom losses. There have been people whose businesses have been shut down and ministries that have been affected. But at the same time, in recent years, the Supreme Court has been doing a very good job of protecting religious freedom. If you look at the Supreme Court's religious freedom cases over the last 10 to 15 years, they're almost all really good decisions on the areas of religious liberty. So it may be trending. Who knows what's going to happen in the next um, 50 years? But we as God's people need to have a sober assessment of the reality that we face. We are not in a position where the sky is falling. We're not in the position where totalitarianism is getting to run rampant. But there are threats to religious liberty that are real and that need to be taken into account. And we need to, to try to understand those things. So we need to avoid the extremes is what I'm trying to say. I would commend to you a book. Um, Luke Goodrich is a, a lawyer with the Alliance Defending Freedom. This book was actually topped both World Magazine's book of the year and um, Gospel Coalition's book of the year for uh, culture, Christianity and culture in America helping us understand how to navigate those things. Free to believe is what it's called, the battle over religious liberty in America. I commend it to you. It's a good book. I've read the whole thing. And uh, I just want to point out a couple of examples from the book that, that Luke pulls out. He says, there, while there is cause for concern, we must avoid what he calls the pilgrim or the martyr perspectives when it comes to religious liberty. What does he mean by that? Well, by the pilgrim perspective, it would sound something like this. America was founded as a Christian nation not simply on Judeo-Christian principles. And we should expect Christianity to be taught, maybe even promoted by the government. That would be the pilgrim perspective. The martyr perspective would be Christians should expect persecution and welcome it so it's a waste of time and energy to participate with the government at all. Preach the gospel or die trying. So the pilgrim perspective would be these sorts of things. Religious freedom was a founding principle of our nation, which is true. America is a chosen nation, a city on a hill, and a unique instrument of God to bring freedom and blessing to the world. I don't find a verse on that. Most of the founding fathers had a Judeo-Christian worldview. That would be true. And then you see things in the culture like the war on Christmas, right? We have to take Christmas back. We can't say happy holidays. You know, we got to get Christmas back being said. And Ten Commandments on the courthouse and prayer in public schools and Christianity deserves special treatment in our society because it's true and because we're a Judeo-Christian nation. So that would be the pilgrim perspective. Then you have some problems, though, with the pilgrim's perspective. 
God has made no covenant with America. It is at one of the nations of Psalms 2 that rages against the Lord. Christians should expect special treatment, should, should expect, shouldn't, sorry, should, should not expect special treatment even in America. Our citizenship is in heaven. A government that promotes Christianity sounds good, but when a state offers a privileged position to a church, it inevitably seeks to control the church and usually ends up corrupting the church. Behold medieval European history and the book of Revelation, which talks a lot about the role of the, 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 church, of the state trying to co-opt the church into its own purposes. Asking for prayer to be restored in public schools should be the government, would be the government favoring one religion over another. And it puts Christianity in danger because what if they decide to change that? An exclusive pilgrim perspective can produce fear, anger, and fighting in Christians, which tends to turn religious liberty into means of maintaining comfort and privilege. And that's my fear in a lot of uh, Christian cultural debates surrounding religious liberty is that it doesn't really sound like it's advocating religious freedom for all. It sounds like it's advocating for comfort and privilege for Christianity, which is not what the Bible would call us to be and do as God's people. The martyr's perspective, on the other hand, would go to the other extreme and say Christians should expect special, shouldn't expect special treatment or seek cultural dominance. We need to be countercultural. We're tired of the culture wars. We need to focus on the poor and the downcast and turning the other cheek and rather than getting involved in politics and persecution is good and serves to purify the church. There's a couple of problems with that as well. Scripture does not teach that persecution is a good thing. It's an evil thing that God often uses for good purposes but that doesn't mean the thing in itself is a good thing. The church does not always flourish under persecution. We know that from church history and the Bible itself. In our American system of government, religious liberty is everyone's problem because the state is accountable to the people who are ultimately the governing authorities. A Christian who doesn't care about religious liberty for all is consigning the church and other religious groups to persecution, which is doing harm, and that's contrary to the way of Christ. So that's one of the problems with, or some of the problems with the, with the martyr's idea. So religious liberty is not a tool for maintaining cultural dominance, it's, nor is it a luxury that should be abandoned lightly. Rather, it's a basic issue of biblical justice that's rooted in the nature of God and man. Human beings are created for relationship with God, and God desires a relationship with us that's not coerced from without, but convinced from within. The kingdom of God does not come by means of the sword, but by means of the word. So when the government uses its coercive power to interfere in the relationship between God and man, either by in favor of Christianity or wholesale against Christianity or either any other religious group, then that's a violation of religious liberty. This means that addressing, this means addressing some common myths surrounding religious liberty. Let's just talk about three of those common myths. Myth number one, religious liberty is not about ending the separation of church and state. It's about maintaining it. The church doesn't attempt to punish unbelief with civil power, like calling upon the state to exercise church discipline, and the state doesn't attempt to interfere with the living out of religious convictions. It doesn't mean the separation of religious convictions from the public square as if that was even possible. Everyone brings their sincerely held beliefs to the public square, even those who claim no religion. Christians aren't unique in this. Christians want pluralism. Now, pluralism isn't relativism, okay? Pluralism is not saying that all religions are equally true, but that all religions should be debated, debated freely and equally in the public square. We are not, we are talking about religious pluralism in society, not religious pluralism leading to heaven. 
And sometimes that's confusing because we start advocating for religious pluralism. And people are like, wait, so you believe all religions lead to God? No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that the best context for the gospel to advance is when there is a pluralistic society that is sympathetic to all religions being open and practiced. And we'll see that in Scripture in the way Paul prays. Myth number two, religious liberty is a cover for discriminating against those with whom we disagree. We hear that a lot these days. Most people in this country have no desire, especially the religious people in this country, whether they be Christians or other religions, desire to withhold friendship or business from people with whom they disagree, even on serious issues. Some have suggested that bills spelling out religious liberty, given, giving businesses the right to discriminate, especially against gay and lesbian persons. But that isn't true. The cases in dispute are not about business with businesses with no gays allowed policies. They aren't about a refusal to serve gay people. They are about being compelled by state coercion to use their speech to active, actively support things that they believe cause them to sin personally. So religious liberty means that religious convictions ought to be considered when these sorts of conflicts emerge. It isn't in anyone's best interest, secular or religious, to ask people in the marketplace to act in ways they consider immoral just because their view are, views are unpopular in the cultural moment. It isn't cover for discrimination. It's healthy pluralism. Accommodating religious convictions where possible has helped our country to cooperate across divisions and has helped us to remain far more unified than we would be otherwise. Therefore, far from driving the wedge of hatred deeper, religious liberty for all is a means of achieving greater inclusivity as much as it's possible in a pluralistic society. Dan Darling, um, who worked for a long time at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Convention of the Convention of the Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention said, "If you, I believe you to be wrong, but I will die for your right to believe it. And we should have those sorts of convictions. That's what religious liberty is. I believe you to be wrong, but I will die for your right to believe it. Myth number three, religious liberty is just about protecting Christians. No, when we work for religious liberty, we are pursuing the common good, not the interests of only one group. We're not just protecting ourselves. We're working to keep ourselves from participating and all people from being obligated to participate in the evil of a conscience-restricting coercive government. Religious liberty is not the property of government and is not something that is dispensed by those with the most votes. It is a natural right given by God, recognized by the government, but not legislated into existence by the government. If we are a free people in a constitutional government, we should expect our government to leave our consciences free. But that means we should also, and we do, expect many other free people to call us crazy and stupid. As citizens, we should expect freedom of religion, but as Christians, we do not expect freedom from ridicule. That just goes with the territory. So by advocating for religious liberty, Christians aren't advocating for a safe space for themselves. They are advocating that we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. More on that in a moment. So let's come to the basis for religious liberty. Any quick comments on that before we dive into some of the biblical background on this idea? about the myths, about some of the challenges, about the definition, any thoughts that you all have or want to share about any of those things related to religious liberty. All right, we'll dive into the basis then. Let's, we're going to look at several passages, and then we're going to look at some biblical examples of the ways in which this sort of played out, because I hope these stories will help kind of put, okay, you've been talking a lot up here about principles and philosophy and that kind of stuff. Let's get down into the biblical text and actually see where, where we see this. Key passage, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings 
This is Paul instructing Timothy to instruct the church at Ephesus what to do in light of the challenges that they're facing. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So I want you to see a couple things here. Notice on the left-hand side of the screen, you've got prayer for government. And on the right side of the screen, you've got the advancement of the gospel. See that? So you've got Paul instructing that we pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Not that Christians would be privileged in society, but that we'd be left alone. That we would be able to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is good. It's good to pray this. It's good when God answers these prayers to allow the church to live this way in a pluralistic society. Because it's good and it's pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved. So this is a context in which all people can hear the gospel and be saved. So Paul wants Christians and everyone to be able to follow what they believe in peace. He's specifically praying for the church here that the church would be allowed. But I think the implication is everyone would be allowed to live in peace so that God's people can be can live in a godly and dignified way and so that the truth might be heard in the public square. Paul tells us that this is a good thing, both to work for and to pray for. The best climate for gospel progress is a healthy pluralism that respects the rights of all and leaves Christians and other religious and non-religious people alone in matters of the soul. That doesn't mean the gospel can't make progress in other ways. It does, but when Caesar doesn't interfere with those things that belong to God, that's better. The gospel does not need the power of the sword to accomplish his mission. Remember when Jesus said in John 18, Peter, put away your sword. This isn't how the kingdom comes. And he chastened his disciples, not his dimples. I don't, I don't know how in the world this stuff. Why would you change disciples to dimples? But that's the way. When they want to co coerce belief. Right, because he's... he's, uh, he's Let's, let's actually look at that passage. Look at Luke, Luke, Luke chapter 9 if you've got your Bible with you. I didn't print it on my notes, but I think it's worth taking just a, a quick look at. Jesus is constantly having to, having to uh, address his disciples in terms of the way they act towards the government and uh, specifically the way they think his kingdom's going to come. And we all struggle with this to varying degrees even, even down to today. But I want you to notice what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 and following. He says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? but he turned and rebuked them, right? And then he went on to another village. So the idea, I mean, it's always been a temptation among God's people to want the kingdom to come in some aggressive, demonstrable, visible, powerful way, whether it be Peter taking up his sword and, or whether it be the disciples saying, can we call down fire now? 
said no. And he rebukes them every time for that kind of thinking because that's not how the kingdom comes. If you know that image, Caesar's coin, the one that Jesus would have been referring to in uh, his comments on that, which we'll get to in just a second. So the goal isn't to create an American theocracy, that is a nation that is ruled directly by God, where everyone who disagrees with us is punished by the state, but rather to work to remove barriers between people and the gospel. The ideal climate for the gospel is when there is freedom from the go- for the gospel to be preached and the government does what it can to preserve an orderly society in which people can freely believe. So the state is given the external power of the sword to coercively act against threats to public order and justice. That's Romans 13, to, to punish those who do evil and to uh, reward those who do good. The state does not have the power in regulating what is owed to God himself. And this is Jesus' point in Mark 12, 17. When they come to him and they try to trick him and they hold the coin out in front of him, they say, who who's this belong to? He says, well, look on this side. It says, that's Caesar. So render to Caesar. Should we pay taxes to the government or not? Well, if it's Caesar's right, give it to Caesar. If it's God's right, give it to God. So he has a distinction between the things that belong to government and the things that belong to God. Caesar has the right to take taxes, but he does not have the power to demand everything from people. You were not made in the image of Caesar. That's Jesus' point. Whose image is on this? This is the image of Caesar. Give to Caesar the image of Caesar. Give to God the image of God. The image of God is you. And that's Jesus' point. You were made in the image of God, as was everyone else. Therefore, your conscience is not the property of the state. It's the property of God. And the state has no right to demand you to believe what it chooses. God, your creator, has authority over matters of the soul. In other words, Jesus is telling the state that it must protect not undermine religious liberty. The the right to choose what to believe is a critical facet of being made in God's image. When the government uses its coercive power to interfere in the relationship between God and man, that's a violation of religious liberty, whether it's in favor of the church or against the church. The denial of religious liberty is a form of injustice because it's an attempt to invade a realm that belongs only to God, and it's a denial of the opportunity of man to freely embrace or reject him. Our job is to entrust ourselves to God while seeking the common good of society, which means that we should care about religious liberty. So let's go to the practice of it in the Bible. We're going to look at several different passages here, spend some time in these. First of all, Exodus 1, 8 through 22, would you turn there in your Bibles? And would one of us, I'm not going to have us read the entire passage, but I would like a volunteer to you got a kind of a loud voice and can project out to read um, Exodus chapter 1. And I, j- just read verses, let's start at verse 8 and read down to verse 14. Someone read that for us. Whoever gets it first, re- just start reading out loud. We'll follow you. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us do shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthless, ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All right, so we get the oppression from the government upon the people of Israel because they're multiplying and the government is fearing a Israelite takeover of Egypt if he doesn't stop their population growth. So how does he choose to address that? Someone start at verse 15 and read through verse 17. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth, you see from upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, but did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but fled before the Lord. So there you are. This is Caesar trying to take over what belongs to God, right? It's the state moving in and saying, execute innocent life, infanticide. And so the Hebrew midwives who were charged, commanded to do this. It, just, it wasn't just they disagreed with it. It's that they were commanded to, to participate in it. And as a result, we see in verse 18, or verse 17, they didn't do it. They resisted it. The government seeks to get God's people to do what God forbids, commanding them to destroy innocent human life. That's not the property of the state. There's an immense pressure to obey the government rather than God. And fearing God led them to act wisely, and God smiled on their resistance. We see in verse 18, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, we're not told whether that's a half-truth or not. It probably is largely true in terms of the way that they had historically dealt with Israelite women. They, they give birth quickly. Why do you think the population's grown so fast? But notice, they're, they're very diplomatic. They don't just invoke the name of, well, you commanded us to sin against God. That's why we did it. No, they're more shrewd than that. So God, verse 20, dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So again, he doesn't respond favorably to that. They did the right thing. God commends them and the government goes on and tries to execute an even worse crime. So just because we lobby for or resist efforts of the government to impinge upon religious liberty doesn't mean that it won't necessarily go get worse. But that wasn't the issue. The issue was they were commanding God's people, Shifra, Pua, the, the, the Egyptian midwives, to do something that God clearly condemned. And so they resisted. And they did so respectfully, diplomatically, but nevertheless, conscientiously and rightly. And God blessed them as a result of it, even though for God's people, it got worse for a time. Also, Daniel, let's go to Daniel chapter one. And we see this in Daniel's life as well as he goes to work in Babylon and is going to be laboring in a pretty much an anti-God condition, state that he's working for. And 
we see what Daniel does in the midst of all that. In Daniel chapter 1, and I'll just read. If someone gets there, you can read those verses for us. Would someone read Daniel 1, 3 to 5 for us? So we see that among them, they're told, these were Daniel, Hananiah, verse 6, Mishael, Azariah, the tribe of Judah, and the chief eunuchs gave them new names, and we know those names. But skip down to verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked for a religious exemption, <laughs> the chief of the eunuchs, to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you to deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listen to them. And we see in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So Daniel asked for a religious exemption, religious accommodation to not eat the king's food. He did not exacerbate the conflict. He didn't say, you can't tell us to do this. Don't you know that God is the true king and you're commanding us to violate Jewish dietary laws? He negotiated. He composed a test very wisely whereby he could show the good that Christianity would bring or Judaism would bring to the empire. So you see Christianity is transforming or at least Judaism of this day, Israelite religion. Is, is, is he's advocating, this will be good. This will be good for me. This will be good for us. I'll have strength and vigor to be able to do my job better. It's not a threat to your government. It's going to enable me to be a better servant of the government, this pagan government. Daniel was eventually allowed the exemption on the basis of that appeal and God's blessing on his efforts. Daniel 3, we won't read the entire passage. This is the familiar, um, the familiar text with Daniel and and specifically here with Dan in Daniel 3 with um, being told uh, for the Daniel's friends to bow down, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. And um, they flat out refused to do so. And they reap the consequences for it, right? They defiantly, this is different from what Daniel did in Daniel 1 where he just asked for an accommodation. But they weren't, they weren't in Daniel 1, that's a different situation from Daniel 3, right? Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar is commanding that they commit idolatry, that they bow down and acknowledge that Nebuchadnezzar is the true God. And so they defiantly disobeyed. 
because God is far more powerful than any human authority and can rescue them from any situation, no matter how desperate. And I love their response. It is so beautiful. They say, God is able to rescue us, and even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. They don't assume it's all going to go well. They don't assume they're not going to get dispatched to God's presence right away and they're going to die. They don't hold God to that, but they say God is worthy whether we live or whether we die. That's the response that we should have. So they put their trust in God even when a favorable outcome was not promised. And the right response glorified God. So we should not expect all appeals for religious liberty to be met with accommodation. Oftentimes, depending on the government, it will be met with fierce resistance, and we must be prepared to trust God and face the consequences. Esther. There was a government attempting to destroy the Jews. Mordecai believed that bowing down to Haman was a form of idolatry, and Haman was furious and wanted to destroy the Jews, so Mordecai didn't pretend everything was fine, but his response was faithful, and he had a deep faith and believed that God wanted to work through Queen Esther. Esther was brave, she was wise, she was prayerful, and she used her power to save the Jews. She called them to fast and pray, and then she risked her life by going to the king and patiently revealing Haman's plot. So again, in the book of Esther, we see Esther again appealing for religious freedom, religious liberty, just as Daniel did, and just as we saw the Hebrew midwives do in Hebrews or Exodus chapter 1. A few more examples as we get into the New Testament, then we'll wrap up. The apostles. So in the book of Acts, the church is growing, and it made the Jewish leaders jealous that this Christian movement, this way of Christ movement, was growing. The government attempted to stop the spread of the gospel. God gave the apostles boldness, and he rescued them, but he also let them suffer. Sometimes violations of religious freedom caused Paul to leave a place, and sometimes they caused him to stay. You can read Acts 8, 13 and 14 for the time he leaves, and Acts 18 for the time he stays. It depends on what would best serve the cause of the gospel and the good of the church. It should not surprise us that the places where Paul was given the greatest religious freedom were the places with the most vibrant churches, Rome and Ephesus and Corinth. Case study would be Acts 16, where Paul was willing to invoke his legal rights as a Roman citizen from time to time. We read that in Acts 16. But what happened as a result of those things? He and Silas did not do this to avoid suffering. If they wanted to avoid suffering, they could have left at night when God sent an earthquake. Yet they chose to stay in prison and invoke their rights as a Roman citizen. They also didn't invoke their rights to get even with those who had beaten them, which they could have if they had pressed charges with a higher authority, but they didn't press charges. That's why the magistrates were afraid. They were afraid they would be beaten or worse as a result of their appeal and pressing charges, knowing that they just punished a Roman citizen in this way. Paul was concerned about the reputation of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. If they left secretly, everyone would assume they were criminals who had been justly punished, which would invite similar injustice and undermine the reputation of the gospel. But by insisting on a public, public apology and release, they showed that they, that they had done no wrong, which would help the public perception of Christians, that they weren't a threat to the state. And it deterred the magistrates in the future, which would serve the peaceful progress of the gospel and the freedom of the church. That's why Paul stayed in prison. That's why Paul did what he did, because he was concerned with what would best help the church in the long run and what would best pro pro provide a climate in which the gospel could be freely preached. 
So there's a time and a place for invoking our legal rights when it serves to advance the gospel and the common good, not because we're seeking personal comfort or revenge. Paul did it again on other occasions in Acts 22 and Acts 24 and Acts 25. All these stories taken together illustrate the radically different ways Christians are called to approach encroachments on religious liberty. We need to let go of winning, strive to be faithful, expect suffering, rejoice when it comes, fear God, not man, strive for peace, continue doing good, love our enemies, care for fellow Christians, all while seeking to articulate, defend, and advance religious liberty for all. I think that's what the Bible would call it. And the example of Paul in Acts 16 would commend for us. So let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this study. It feels like drinking from a fire hose when we consider topics like this and we're trying to survey so many different passages. But I pray that you would sharpen our thinking and embolden our faith by the examples that we see in early Baptist forefathers in early Americas and and also the way we see, most importantly, the, the our brothers and sisters in your word, from the book of Exodus to the book of Daniel to Esther to the apostles. And down through the, your word, we see your people courageously, diplomatically, humbly, lovingly, conscientiously um, opposing the government when the encroachments of religious liberty are real. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd give us wisdom. We live in a, a, a difficult moment of history, a complicated day, lots of questions, lots of changes underfoot and things that are happening so fast. It seems like we're just catching up with one thing and another thing comes. But, Lord, you have given us a sufficient word and you have equipped us with everything we need for life and godliness. You've equipped us with everything we, good, we, we need to live a life pleasing to you and honoring to you. We pray that we would devote ourselves to prayer, and we do pray. We do pray for the, our own uh, American culture that we love because we are here, and you've called us to love the people here and the country to which we're a part and to seek its good and to seek its blessing. And so, Lord, inasmuch as you're pleased to preserve religious liberty in our land for the progress of, of the gospel, uh, Lord, we pray that you would grant that. Lord, we don't wish persecution in our own country. We don't wish it on our brothers and sisters around the world. And we pray that you would preserve it here so that the gospel might go forward in a day where there is so much darkness and so much challenge and so much, um, so much outward sin, even though inward sin and in some ways outward sin has been present since the founding of our country. Lord, we're not a sinless people. So Lord, have mercy upon us. Grant us this grace. We pray according to the Apostle Paul that we would be able to live quiet and peaceful lives and all dignity, and that we know this is good and that it's pleasing in your sight. And we desire that other people would be saved. We desire that you would save this morning, even in our own assembly and in assemblies around our community and state and nation, that your word, as it's preached, faithfully and freely, would have free course in the hearts of people to transform them, to sanctify your saints, and to save the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.